Hello everyone, it's November 24th, 2020, so there's more news on that anomalous Starship test fire and the debris it kicked up, and there was a Vega launch that also had an anomaly, but during an actual launch, so that's not good. But let's see what we can make of it, so let's launch the show, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower, welcome to episode 286 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast, I'm David. I'm Ben, and I'm Dennis. So, uh, I guess we have to discuss, or lament the possible destruction of the Arecibo telescope. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I just found out about that this morning from a Scott Manley video, which is where I get all my best space news. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, our, our Discord had been mm-hmm. talking about it over, over the last, like, what, three or four weeks? Just like, oop, cable snapped. Oop, another cable snapped. Oop, yep. You know, mm-hmm. just falling apart. And I mean, to decide to totally decommission it is like a huge step because like Arecibo has a huge value and like the repair cost, they, what the, the official statement said, uh, they couldn't find a safe way to fix it. But I mean, technically mm-hmm. you decommission it and reconstruct it. That's, you know, uh, the ultimate, like, you know, n- no holds barred kind of fix. But apparently they're, what I think they're saying is there's nothing between here and there that we can do to fix it that is cheaper than the returned science value, I guess. And so that return science value is huge. And so it really just must have been an expensive fix. Um, I can't wait to hear lessons learned from this. Like w- what could we have done to maintain this better and to you know, know that something was wrong mm-hmm. ahead of time. Well, apparently the, like, cause there were cables, there was at least one cable that snapped and it was still well within its tolerance, but it still mm-hmm. snapped anyway. And so they're thinking that maybe, you know, it's not as safe as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that reason, they can't take that chance. Yeah, and, and I didn't read too much on the reporting, but it did. So like the hits just kept on coming, but it was uh, two or three years ago that Hurricane Maria, when that went through, that damaged... That left a lot of damage, and I mean, it devastated Puerto Rico. And so, um, I, I remember. I don't know if that ultimately maybe led to the first cable failing, you know, a couple years later, and then that one failing put more load on the other one that then just failed. And that's why it's kind of you know it's dangerous right now. This kind of the thing. In order to repair it, they would have to well, they would have to lower that central the central hub. I can't think of what it's called. <laughs> The receiver yeah. end, I guess. Yeah, the receiver. That's They would have to lower that, and there's, you know, a giant dish in the way, so they have to take that apart. And so it's just like you'd have to pretty much take it apart anyway in order to put it back together. Yeah, it's weird to me that they can't bring that down without w- without dismantling the dish. Like, couldn't you, like, lower it a little bit and connect new cable? I don't know. I, I, guess, I guess it's such a – you can't put temporary cables in place because it's all dependent on weight and so adding new cables might just add more weight Mm. and and i guess on top of that you have to be able to do it safely yeah it's an amazing piece of construction i I hope that we can do something on this scale again you know a single dish Mm. observatory but I, i guess you know we're getting so good at software this may be the last giant single dish telescope what do you think dennis well Uh, i mean china just built one a few years ago that's much much bigger so building single dishes into sinkholes like this i think i could imagine maybe in the future the u.s you know wanting access to another one um it limits right you you have to basically have it you know you can't aim it all that much 
<laughs> because you know because mm. it's kind of stuck in one direction so you could so you got to wait for the sky to pass over you essentially but um i i mean i hope that if if they do ultimately you know follow through with decommissioning it that we end up having a next generation arecibo like observatory somewhere near the equator uh in the future So serial number eight, uh, follow-up on the latest Starship. So we have some more information on what went wrong um, last week. I don't remember what we said, but not a whole lot. We were speculating. We weren't sure. We uh, we talked about um, the burst disk saving us from the hydraulics overpressure, but what we weren't sure about was why the hydraulics failed, and we weren't sure why the engine melted. Um, and at least now we know about the engine melting and this, this may well have to do with the hydraulics as well. Um, this comes from, uh, directly from the horse's mouth. Elon tweeted, um, some interesting answers this week. Um, so I'll just read these tweets, then we can discuss. Um, he said about two seconds after starting the engines, the martite covering concrete below, uh, shattered, sending blades of hardened rock into the engine bay. One rock blade, Great phrase. One rock blade severed uh, an avionics cable, causing bad shutdowns of Raptor. And uh, additionally, he said, uh, avionics cables moving to steel pipe shields and adding water-cooled steel pipes to test pad. So I, I did a quick Google. I can I can talk about Martite real quick. It's a ceramic-filled hmm. epoxy. And NASA's actually studied using Martite um, to line its flame trenches as well. Um, but from what I can tell, it, it's just too expensive and NASA hasn't ever used it. They, they tend to use um, different concrete blends, including um, ablative concrete. Mm. And Martite also has some issues. If you want to add other types of ablators on top of it, it, it won't bind very well in some instances. And so uh, apparently um, SpaceX decided that Martite was the way to go. And uh, apparently uh, if you get a big enough pre uh, a temperature differential, uh, Martite, you know, being a, a ceramic and an epoxy, those are, those are two things that do like to shatter and do like to form sharp edges when they shatter. Mm -hmm. Apparently, <laughs> if you get a, a good enough, uh, temperature gradient, uh, you can get this to, this material to pop and spray, uh, rock blades <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> so, um, if you go on Twitter, uh, you can see that, uh, RGV aerial photography, which is a pretty sweet account that essentially just kind of checks out, um, Boca Chica all the time does weekly flyovers with uh, some nice imaging. They were able to show the um, the the firing uh, pad and the damage. You could see basically that you know it's got that kind of lighter gray concrete color to it. But then there's almost what's, almost what looks like you know if you just poured some water on there, it becomes like a darker brown. Mm -hmm. These kind of like mm -hmm. splotches of that, especially underneath the pad, and that's uh, presumably the you know now fragmented mart type. Um, flying off, uh, you know, after it had flown off in whatever direction it did. And so um, really cool images and pretty darn close up for, you know, being taken from. Yeah. And it, it's <laughs> worth pointing out that I, I called this a flame trench, but it, it really is, is just a, a flame pad. I mean, it's just a flat mm -hmm. uh, concrete pad that they've got the, the stand on. And th this is the same stand that they, that they've lifted off from, right? This isn't. This pad is the same pad that they've used multiple times. And so that's kind of what caused this is that, you know, basically the Martite 
was becoming fatigued, which doesn't do it any favors as being used in the future, you know, like in flame trenches, because apparently after a couple of launches, you would have to replace it. Cause I, it, I mean, it doesn't seem to stick very well, although maybe yeah. that can be addressed. You know, maybe, uh, maybe if it was an angled trench, uh, that would help a little bit because it gets to shed off more of the gas mm-hmm. instead of having the mm-hmm. gas, uh, impinge straight on, you, you'd get a little, a little spreading. It makes sense that SpaceX doesn't want to build a, a trench here because they're trying to build a vehicle that can lift off um, from a, a flat surface on the moon. Mm. Um, and, and so it probably behooves them to replicate that environment, you know, where and how they can now. Um, and for nothing, you know, for no other reason also that, you know, any rock blades that are generated um, in a trench might not be basically heading back up towards the base of your vehicle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Going off the mm-hmm. side and missing things safely. Yeah. A flame trench definitely would be safer. But like you said, it's supposed to lift off from flat surfaces. So what does this mean for once the vehicle is in service? Because you're going to have a lot more engines though, right? On the orbital vehicles, right? Yeah. They're only up to three engines right now. So Because if this is supposed to land, which obviously it is, then you can't land on something above. Well, I, maybe you could, but it seems tricky to land on something that's, you know, sitting just above a flame trench. Like you have to have a yeah. platform. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you'd, e- you'd either have to have like a full on platform, which is way, I think that's the way you would want to go, even though it's more material, or you could just dig your flame trench, um, you know, in a way that there was flat area to land on, but that really narrows your, mm-hmm. but I guess, I guess even, even a stand and until you are talking about some sort of mesh that can stand up to uh rocket engine exhaust, um, you know, you're not going to be able to have a permeable platform to land on, you know, and, and on the moon, granted, you're going to be landing with less impinge, you know, less flame, you know, flaming hot exhaust, uh, just by nature of the gravity, but yeah, just, you're, you're going to need to be able to land on a flat surface. Right. So I'm also thinking like, maybe you could have, you know, pads that, you know, all right, maybe you do take off from a, a, a flame trench, right? When you have all like, you know, however many dozen Raptors firing. And then when you're, uh, returning to earth or whatatever, then you, you know, cause presumably right on the reentry, they're only going to be firing a, a smaller subset of the engines. And so you could get away with a flatter pad that might, you know, I don't know, they do some improvements, so you still don't want rock blades coming up at you, but it'd be less engines firing, and so it'd be a little easier yeah. to deal with. And, and uh, on that note, like, this is uh, uh, the worst-case scenario, uh, uh, a static fire where you have not only, you know, X number of engines firing, but you have the whole vehicle not moving away from the that's, bad. That's a good point, yeah. Um, and so that's when, um, you know, deviating from a theoretical lunar launch pad makes a lot of sense yeah you go ahead and include um water cooling in the pad because it you know that's not going to be the environment that that you're going to be uh launching from the moon but i mean imagine a a theoretical future when we have beautiful uh lunar regolith um glassified pads right where they just hit the lunar regolith with a um with a microwave uh uh zamboni and form this nice hardened uh uh launch pad um and imagine that thing gets landed on over and over and over and at some point it also you know cuz when you do that you have glassified rock um and if that's going to shatter it's probably going to shatter into very sharp pieces mm-hmm. and you know they're going to get flung because you're uh, adding a lot of stress and then relieving it very quickly 
You know, this is something that could potentially happen on the moon, and it's something that we have to think about uh, a, a long-term launch pad construction. Is it not the case that maybe they'll be landing on uh, the Starship, whatever it's called, like the moon variant, the lunar variant? Yeah, the, of, the, like the HLS one had the thrusters higher. Yeah, Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. It had higher up thrusters so that it wasn't coming down directly on the surface, but rather you're, you know, like generating that thrust much higher up. And I guess they're powerful enough to, you know, land on the moon. I don't know about taking off, obviously, or yeah, that wouldn't be possible. But well, no, no, no. It's if you can land with them, you can take off with them. Right. Well, what I'm saying is, I've never seen it done where you would lift off with those and then switch to your other thrusters because I don't think you can get to orbit with those engines. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to get to orbit, but you also wouldn't do the entire landing burn with those high up thrusters either. Um, You would do most of your deceleration with your main engines and then use those for landing. And so you could use those to get you up off the surface and then engage the... Yeah, well, well, that's the part that that maybe... I mean, that would be neat. I've never seen anything like that, but I guess we haven't had any need to do so. But Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Interesting. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, this is all, uh, experimental and it's, it's really cool to see them iterate through, uh, different solutions as, as new problems arise, but Martite may, maybe not the material you want to put money into, especially cause it's so expensive. And then one other thing is that maybe the Martite had damaged some heat tiles that were mounted on the pretty high up on the body of the vehicle. But I had never seen those before because I think we had talked about multiple times exactly how they're doing thermal management. And so, yeah, it looks like actual heat tiles, unless they were for something else and they just wanted them there. I don't know why, but, Mm -hmm. you know, those appear to be what they would have on Starship. Yeah, they've slapped them on the side before. Yeah. yeah, we have actually talked about them on the show before. Yeah, well, we've talked about them, but I personally have never seen them. I don't know how I've missed that pick, but it was just kind of oh, cool to see them. It is cool. So we also know that tiles were damaged. I guess we just don't know if they were damaged in this static fire, yeah? They were damaged in this static fire. We just don't know if it was because of, although I can't think of any oh, other because reason. Of because of the Martite, okay. Yeah, because clearly a tile was like, you know, C- pretty much all the some... off. Yeah, I don't think I need to be a super detective i feel like i'm pretty (laughs) safe in assuming that you know uh, these chunks of uh, surface pad coming back at you probably are responsible for (laughs) yeah i mean who knows like maybe uh maybe when the hydraulics uh failed there could have been some some buckling or extra vibration on the surface and that could have done the damage but i I think that's Mm. less likely so let's translate to a second story let's talk about vega real quick and it's second launch failure in a little over a year i was gonna i was gonna say within the past 365 days but not quite but since then actually since the last failure there's only been one other successful launch of a vega which was in september of this year and then we have another failure that previous one it led to the highest recorded amount for an insurance claim for a satellite launch failure at $411 million. That sucks for them. And then this one was, this launch failure resulted in a loss of around at least about $250 million worth of payloads, somewhere around there. Yeah, they were biggies on board. Yeah, and one was the first satellite to ever fly for Spain or from Spain or, I guess, built by Spain. So the launch failure, interesting thing, human error. Yeah, so they were able to track down uh, this human error, and it was uh, in the fourth stage. So kind of frustrating in more than one ways. You know what I mean? You got three stages that do their job well. Um, The fourth stage lights... And suddenly the spacecraft, you know, it's the rockets tumbling out of control. And it's, it's such an easy to understand error and very much a kind of face palming type one where the cables for the thrust vector control system, two of them were inverted and going to the wrong place. 
So when the wow. rocket's getting commands to pitch or yaw, you know, or roll one direction, it's actually telling, you know, a different, you know, story to the spacecraft itself. And so it wound up, you know, tumbling. As you can imagine, that's not a very stable way to keep yourself lined on your trajectory you want to do. Yeah. Constantly turn left. No, the other left. <laughs> stage left. Yeah. yeah. Well, oh, get it? Stage left? All right. Oh, whoa, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> That was a good bad pun. Those are the best ones. So uh, this is very similar to, I guess, Reminiscent it was a proton of that Russian failure. one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it was a proton. It's interesting to me how this type of mistake can happen because of all the complicated things that can go wrong. It's just you put two cables in the wrong spot. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that always surprises me when I hear about something like this happening, uh, that it all comes down to one dumb mistake. Mm, yeah. Let's do four short and sweets this week. What's the first one, Dennis? First up, Russian spacewalk completed to prepare for science module. Using the Poisk module as an airlock for the first time, cosmonauts Sergei Ryzhikov and Sergei Kudsverchkov completed a 6 hour 48 minute EVA on Wednesday. The spacewalk's goal was to prepare for the eventual decommissioning of the Piers module, scheduled to be separated and deorbited by a progress in 2021 to clear the way for the long-awaited multi-purpose laboratory module, or MLM, aka NAUCA. A telemetry cable that supports comms during EVAs was successfully relocated from Piers to Poisk, although the installation of a new fluid regulator outside Zarya had to be abandoned when the cosmonauts were unable to free a bolt. Next, Lavaro's exit illuminated. This week, the Washington Post reported on the events leading up to Doug Lavaro's forced resignation back in January. While it was known that Lavero had a phone call with Jim Chilton of Boeing during the bidding process, this is the first time we've heard details on that conversation. In his resignation letter, Lavero cited a quote-unquote risk he had taken. Uh, he was afraid that when Boeing learned its HLS candidate had not been selected due to a failure to meet NASA requirements, that the company would protest the award and put yet another delay in the path to a return to the moon. We now know that Lavero informed Chilton they were going to lose and asked whether they would make that protest. This, of course, led to Boeing's very late in the game revision to their bid and subsequently the ongoing DOJ investigation. Uh, then next up, Skyrora test fires third stage engine. So after 100 tests, the Scottish space company Skyrora has completed verification of the third stage version of their 3.5 kilonewton Leo engine. The hydrogen peroxide engine is unique with its capability of numerous restarts, allowing it to deliver multiple payloads into different altitudes and phases. The three stage Skyrora XL orbital launch vehicle will also have 70 kilonewton versions of the Leo engine for its first and second stages. In the near term, Skyrora is looking into locations and options to launch their suborbital Skylark L rocket. So that's cool. I've never heard of Skyrora, but... We're kind of roaring into the scene. So. Yeah, there you go. Sky, sky roaring into the scene. And finally, Rocket Lab successfully recovers Booster. After launching into space with a payload of 30 satellites and a gnome-shaped mass simulator, the first stage of Rocket Lab's electron rocket splashed down under parachute a few hundred miles off the New Zealand coast. The recovery team then secured and collected the booster, which will undergo inspections. Unlike SpaceX's Falcon 9, the Electron did not use propulsion to slow down, but instead relied on a specific re-entry profile and a pilot drogue and main parachute. This mission, named Return to Sender, makes Rocket Lab the second private company to return an orbital-class booster to the Earth intact. Gabe Newell has donated over $80,000 to Starship Children's Hospital in Auckland as the quote-unquote payoff of the Noam Chomsky fundraiser. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. 
questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have some genuine corrections here for us. So, so take well, it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this first one is is not necessarily correction, but uh, uh, Andrew Z gave us a list of things to talk about. So first off, he says, um, "Y'all were talking about ejection systems. Moose is just about the craziest one I know." And yes, Moose is fantastic. I don't think we've ever really talked about it on the show, but uh, if you're curious, I'm pretty sure that there is a good vintage space flight video. Uh, about it. it it luckily it never actually came to fruition because it's <laughs> crazy uh but yeah i think there's at least a vintage space one then i think scott manley did a video on it too certainly yeah certainly yeah um and i always get so moose stands for man out of space easiest and i always get it confused with what is it man in space soonest the program. Oh yeah. And Miss was was also a, a little far fetched, but not nearly as far fetched as Moose. Um, then let's see. He goes on, um, and this is a little bit of an elaboration. I don't I don't believe that this is a a, a correction per se, um, but it, it is something good to to talk about. So he says, um, as to delaying the Falcon Nine crewed flight for recovery weather, I recall a prior government launch. Not sure if it was NASA or DoD, but they delayed the launch by a day, I believe, either because of recovery weather or a technical issue with the drone ship. The customer stated that recovering and reusing the Falcon Nine first stage. Uh, had a significant value to them and that delaying for that was fine. It was acceptable. Um, and that's interesting. I, I don't remember another government launch being delayed specifically to allow for recovery, but that is pretty cool. So if anybody can, can pull up details on that, I, I would, I would love to know more because I, I don't remember that happening, but it certainly doesn't seem, uh, unreasonable. Uh, and then, uh, his third point, he says, uh, regarding Crew Dragon's four seats. And this is a correction because we waffled and didn't come to the correct answer, I believe. Um, he says, Crew Dragon uh, will never launch with more than four people. NASA imposed a design change on Crew Dragon late in the game over the angle of the crew seats and the G-load vector. That's why Crew Dragon seats rotate before launch. And I, I didn't realize that they actually rotated in place. That's interesting. I thought that that was, you know, designed into Crew Dragon from the start. I didn't know that that was a NASA thing. I thought that they always did that, but I guess I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, so anyway, due to the design change, it was not possible to also modify the three lower seats angle due to the available interior space, the, the geometry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, NASA agreed Crew Dragon would be derated to four crew positions only. In an emergency, I'm sure three more crew could strap in like cargo at the bottom of the Crew Dragon and center of pressure, center of gravity, and life support would be fine to recover them to Earth safely. And, and I agree, you, you'd probably be okay doing that. But I'd be really shocked if we ever came to that. <laughs> that would be, that would be uh, off nominal, let's say. Uh, hmm. Off nominal squared. Um, be, uh, and then uh, shuttle astronaut in the payload bay levels. Yeah. <laughs> not, right. not, not uh, and then <laughs> and then he finishes up. To my knowledge, Starliner retains the ability to fly with seven crew. So that that's actually really interesting. I, I don't think I knew that NASA had imposed a design change on Crew Dragon, and it's it's cool that that they have articulating seats. I mean that that's it's always cool to have more moving parts. Uh, I mean just from a, a gut. Uh, like a, a, a Hollywood perspective. That's cool. Mm -hmm. uh, it sucks yeah. that you have to have additional moving parts, but you know, it's, it's not, it's not a critical thing as long as you have them locked into the right position on launch. And so, yeah, uh, crew dragon 
doesn't fly with seven people, um, at least not on a NASA launch. That's that's interesting. That means that NASA must have some other more strenuous requirements. And I guess it just has to do with G loads and they don't want those loads going more down your body, you know, like, you know, I don't know how you put it, but yeah, more down and yeah, not back. Right, exactly. The safest way to take G's is through your chest from front to back. The second best way is through your ass from head to butt. And the worst way is pretty much back to front on your face. Um, the, you know, breaking <laughs> forces in a car yeah. that's, you can't, mm-hmm. you can't sustain a, a lot of G's that way. It's better to put it. Maybe, maybe me ranking them that way is incorrect. Um, but it's not, it's not a horrible way to think about it. I don't think. Well, do you think the worst would be like if you were like completely upside down because yes. then you'd have yeah. blood rushing to your head and yeah, there you go. That would be the worst way. So you want it going through your chest. You'd prefer to take it pressing your back into material uh you could probably take it with your chest in the material but that's gonna put more weight on your lungs which is bad mm-hmm. um and yeah definitely having your your head your head and shoulders pressed into something is is not good so that's a great way to black out okay so moving on we've got another um correction burn from ben heller and this is going to be another uh correction burn that i'm i'm going to ask people to weigh in on because i i believe he's correct um but uh, i did some quick googling and i wasn't able to come to a really solid conclusion so ben says i believe you made an error during the final short and sweet last week uh you seem to say that the 316 million dollar bid uh from SpaceX, uh, includes adding a vertical integration to Vandenberg. They are adding one to historic launch complex 39A, not uh, space launch complex 4E at Vandenberg, uh, unless you've heard otherwise. So my source for this is coming straight from the Space News article, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and quote them directly. They said, for the cost of an extended payload fairing, upgrades to the company's West Coast launch pad at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and a vertical integration facility required for NRO missions. So I, I assumed that because it was in the same sentence as Vandenberg, that the vertical integration facility uh, that they're building for NRO is at Vandenberg. Um, but, but I, oh. I guess it must, they, they must actually be splitting that sentence. That must be an ambiguous sentence. And they were referring to the, the 39A, uh, vertical integration facility. I, I thought that that meant that they were doing a, an additional vertical integration facility at Vandenberg. What, what do you guys think? Just cause this sentence is basically what you get when you Google, uh, vertical integration facility, SpaceX, Vandenberg, as <laughs> you get this mm-hmm. sentence. So this is why I am a staunch advocate for the Oxford comma, because <laughs> the way I'm reading this is that the vertical integration facility is a separate item in this sentence because there's the comma before and. If there yeah, wasn't even- a comma, then I would figure it is linked together with the West Coast launch pad. And if, in any event, if they were both at Vandenberg, then I would have rephrased it as upgrades to the company's West Coast launch pad and a vertical integration facility required for NRO at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Yeah. Yeah. I see, I see what you're saying, but I think even with the Oxford comma there, it, it's still ambiguous. Where it is be, this yes. facility? Um, right. And, and, Unless and you're I, me. And I and you <laughs> use Oxford commas strictly in that sense where I mean it I it wouldn't be ambiguous too. the way I read. Yeah, in the in the last few years I've become an Oxford comma convert, but that doesn't mean that I trust other people to use it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Here's what I'm gonna put out to the listeners. I, I'm gonna assume 
that I misinterpreted this and the vertical integration facility that they're referring to is the one uh, in Florida. If you know of a vertical integration facility in California, let us know because we'd really like to know about it. But but otherwise, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume Ben is correct in his interpretation and back knowledge here. So moving on, let's do some uh, This Week in Spaceflight History. So we have uh, quite a few winners, and credit goes to Tim D., Kristen Lowe, Vedemark Space Agency, Cy Kyle, Amy Parent, the Greek Quartzy, and Eric, who only gets partial credit, apparently. Yeah, so basically the, the fullest credit folks um, explained the French phrase and Eric got the right event but didn't explain the mm. French. So it's it's not it's not partial credit. It's just, yeah. it's you're, you're totally a winner. You totally get credit. It's just other people get the fullest credit. <laughs> the fullest of credit. Yeah, so um, this event was on the 26th of November, 1965, and it was the launch of the Asterix satellite, which was the first French satellite, but more specifically, the third country to launch a satellite with its own launch vehicle. The satellite was Asterix, and the launch vehicle was the Diamant A rocket. So that's the actual event, and that's why it gets a bronze medal, or that's what the clue is in reference to, Médaille de Bronze or Bronze Medal. So yeah, that's what it was. So let's talk about, I guess just briefly, the Asterix satellite itself. There's not a whole lot to say. It was a very simple satellite. Um, and really, it was just constructed as a payload for the Diamant rocket. Um, but yeah, so the uh, the satellite was originally designated A1, but it was uh, renamed after the famous French comic book character. So I don't know if you've ever read Asterix, but it's, I mean, I never have myself, but it's uh, pretty popular. I guess it's kind of like Tintin, you know, I think that's the other big French <laughs> one, um, which I've never read that either. So yeah, the satellite was only 40 kilograms, just wasn't very big. And it had telemetry or it was capable of telemetry and it could transmit some very basic stuff such as um, the vertical and horizontal acceleration and its angular velocity. And I got some conflicting information. I was trying to read as many resources as possible, but I don't think it was even like able to transmit this, which we'll get to why that was. So I don't know if it was transmitting anything at all, um, mm. but that's about as much as it was designed to do. There were actually two other prototypes of the satellite. They were previously launched on a few suborbital rockets called Ruby, and those were just suborbital missiles that were, I think, largely modeled after the German V-2 rocket. The Diamant rocket, again, that's the main event, and that was pushed forward by President Charles de Gaulle because he wanted to have a fully independent French nuclear arsenal or, you know, a French nuclear deterrent, I guess you could say. And I think that there were some negotiations with the United States that didn't go too well, and he kind of came out of it concluding that, you know, France had to have its own, you know, rockets. And so that's kind of where this all came from. So this was really a rocket being designed to launch nuclear missiles. But uh, the Diamant A rocket, and there were two other variations, but uh, the rocket is a three-stage vehicle. It has one first stage hypergolic and then a second and third stage which has solid rocket motors. The maiden launch was also of course on the same date because this was the maiden launch of the rocket with the Asterix satellite it was launched from Hamagir, Algeria which is sort of like in the northern part of the country um, the northwest part of the country. So it was placed into a 527 by 1697 kilometer orbit at a 34.3 degree inclination needless to say it's still there today 
The launch itself of the rocket went well. However, during fairing separation, the Asterix antenna was damaged. And so this is what I'm thinking caused it to go silent, or at least according to the Wikipedia article, or at least the French version one, because there's not much in the English, but the French one says the satellite just went silent. From there, they had to use ground tracking with American radar, just as we tracked, um, whatchamacallit, Sputnik, but not Sputnik. Uh, what's the American one I'm thinking of? I lose track of their names. They were like, what? There's Explorer? You know, Van oh, it was Vanguard. Vanguard, right? Yeah. I thought Vanguard was the failure. No, Van Vanguard was I'm probably wrong. Vanguard was good. Right? Oh, it, no, you're right. It Explorer one. Okay, Boy. so Explorer one's the one. That's the Boy, one. That that should not have been so hard to remember. <laughs> I think they are hard. <laughs> Had it been the first, then I think we would all know. But since mm -hmm. Sputnik came first, we kind of forget what the second satellite was. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So the mission lasted 111 days, during which I guess they just tracked it because I don't know what else they could have done with it. <laughs> um, again, back to the Diamant rocket. It had 12 launches, and it only had two failures, which is actually pretty impressive considering that this was um, a vehicle that uh, they had gotten going pretty quickly, again, at the behest of Charles de Gaulle, or I guess President de Gaulle at that point. The satellite deployed with a pyrotechnic launcher of some sort, so basically that's how it detached from that third oh. stage, which I thought was interesting because I don't think satellites are generally deployed that way, right? Um, at least not anymore, and, and I don't know how many ever were that you would blow something up to detach it from the upper stage, but I thought that was kind of neat. Shortly after those 12 launches, which took place over 10 years between 1965 and 1975, France decided to go in a much different direction, and it kind of became what we know today, where it decided to lean more towards European cooperation, the European Space Agency and all of that. Then we have the Ariane launch vehicles, and the first Ariane launch, I believe, was in the late 70s, so not too long after this. But again, mm. that was more of a joint venture. So yeah, not a lot to say about the Asterix satellite, but it was kind of cool that France decided to make that move Although they wouldn't have had it not been for fear of, you know, a nuclear arms race. So that part's <laughs> kind of disappointing. <laughs> sure, but, sure. Uh, yeah, there you go. And let's uh, see what the event is for next week. Ben, you have a clue, and I have no clue what this clue is about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, we're defining next week as December 1st through December 7th. Dennis pointed out that December is a really nice month for this week in spaceflight history because December 1st is the first, you know, the first week it, it lines up. So 1 to 7. Mm -hmm. Uh, 8 to 14, like it, it works out really nicely. Um, but anyway, uh, next week in 1988, the clue is a quarter degree to spill the tea. So I don't know if this is, yeah, I don't know if this is another pun, you know, like spill the tea or spill the tea. Oh, and I guess you're not going to tell us. It's poetry. And I mean, it's, it is spelled T-E-A, so, right? I mean, it oh, can't be -E spill the capital T or something like that, you know? Mm. I don't know. A quarter degree to spill the tea. It it seems more like this has, this has something to do with actually spilling tea since it involves angles. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Yeah, if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got three launches, so that's cool. And what's the first one? All right. First up is Angara A5. Um, this is a test flight. Um, so this is, uh, you know, a new Russian uh, rocket. This is uh, actually technically its, its second uh, flight. I, I don't know what the payload is. Do you guys know? Oh, it's just a... Uh... It's it's nothing. It's a mass simulator. Yeah, just yeah, mass simulator. So this is technically it's uh, it's second uh, orbital test flight, and it's only carrying a mass simulator. So so nothing uh, helpful on board, although you know could be a cheese. 
Um, it will be flying out of Plesetsk on November 28th at 0522 UTC. That's 1122 AM Eastern time. Uh, good luck to any U.S. folks trying to watch that one. Yeah. Uh, and then next we have a Soyuz launch on either November 28th or 29th, depending on where you live. And so this is a Ariane Spas Soyuz um, designated VS-24. And um, it'll be carrying the Falcon I-2 satellite, which is a uh, United Arab Emirates high-resolution Earth imaging sat. The uh, Soyuz is a 21A uh, rocket using a frigate upper stage. And it's already been, and this particular mission has been delayed uh, since... Um, uh, October and uh, earlier this month. It was switched from a Vega launcher, actually, after Falcon I-1 mm. uh, was apparently, I guess, our 2019 one we referred to earlier when uh, Vega had its failure. My assumption is this isn't Falcon I-2 because it's part of a constellation or like multiple Falcon Eyes network. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is, but it could also just be Falcon I-2 because Falcon I-1 didn't quite make it to orbit. Again, so it'll be on November 29th at 0133 uh, 28 UTC, or for those of you on the East Coast, uh, that's 8.33, 28 p.m. on the 28th. Uh, and so it's launching from uh, Cinemary, uh, French Guiana. It, it'll probably become Falcon Eye A once it's on orbit or something like they tend right. to yeah. keep the probably. All right. And then lastly, on November 29th, and only the 29th, so that's nice, <laughs> um, we have <laughs> uh, we have an H-2A, and that's launching uh, an optical data relay satellite, and that's launching from Tanegashima Space Center in Japan. And so, yeah, this is launching on an H-2A rocket. And this is um, launching Japan's first optical data relay satellite with a laser communications payload. So that's really cool. Another one of those laser communications things that I was talking about last week. Um, yeah. And this will be going into geosynchronous orbit, and it will be relaying signals between low-Earth orbit satellites and ground stations. That's pretty neat. And it's going to be doing that with, again, a laser communications uh I don't know what to call it. A laser. <laughs> so this is kind of like Tedris, but way cooler because it has lasers is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. <laughs> All right. And then we have a final event. And oh, I'm so excited. On the 6th <laughs> of December, Hayabusa 2's Tamatebako, the re-entry uh, capsule, the, the, the sample return capsule will be re-entering Earth's atmosphere. Yay. So exciting. <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about this because it's just so cool. Uh, Tomate Baco means treasure box. And I think that's a fantastic <laughs> name for a re-entry capsule. Um, <laughs> Hayabusa 2 itself will not re-enter the atmosphere. It's going to drop off, uh, the capsule and, and, uh, then adjust its trajectory, uh, to get out of the way. And it will now be, uh, entering its 10 year extended mission. Uh, the extended mission, um, at, there have been a lot of things that they've been talking about doing, but it sounds like they finally, uh, settled into, uh, their final plan. Uh, over the next couple of years, they're going to be um, doing flybys of Earth to change their trajectory because uh, they, they only have, I think, like 30 grams of xenon left. Um, but ultimately, they have two science targets uh, that they'll actually be visiting. Um, they will be flying past asteroid uh, 98943 2001 CC21 in uh, 2026 in, in summer, I believe. And then 
their ultimate uh, final goal is to rendezvous with another asteroid. This is uh, 1998 KY26, and that will uh, that rendezvous will happen in 2023. And uh, KY26 is really cool because it's spinning quite quickly, um, and so they're going to be doing uh, some very risky uh, maneuvers at KY26. They will be, um, you know, collecting all this science that they uh, want to collect safely. And then they're talking about um, dropping um, one of their markers that they still have in reserve, their uh, their beanbag markers, uh, dropping that on the surface, and then maybe even touching down on the asteroid surface, which is dangerous. And it, yeah. it's dashing and daring, and it's so much fun. <laughs> um, and so, that, like I said, this is, you know, 10 years uh worth of worth of mission we're we're going to be going out to 2023 before we hit the the final science goal but during uh that 10 year mission getting us to KY26 they're also going to be doing some exoplanet observation um i, I don't know why hayabusa 2's telescopes are good for exoplanets um it, maybe it's just because you know they're not going to be able to do real resolution but maybe they have a telescope that can sit and look at things for a long period of time because it's JAXA's and nobody else is fighting for uh, time on the spacecraft. I would have expected them to want to do near Earth object observation instead, but who, who knows that what they've said they're going to do is exoplanet observations. So again, the reentry uh, is going to be happening December 6th local time. Uh, the reentry is going to happen near Cooper PD in Australia. And so currently they are on uh, Australian Central Daylight Time, which is UTC plus 10 and a half hours. So in UTC, this is going to be occurring uh, 2800 to 2900 uh, on December 5th. And I really hope I got uh, the dates right. There are going to be a bunch of links uh, in the show notes anyway, so you can go check that out. Unfortunately, very few people are going to be able to observe this in person. It would have been really cool if we lived in a time when we could have got the Orbital Mechanics team together and flown out to go see this, because I think <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, I would love to go to Australia. I would love to go see interplanetary, uh, inner minor planetary <laughs> uh, vehicle <laughs> return. Um, but anyway, definitely uh, keep an eye out. There's going to be some good footage. I guarantee it. Um, there's going to be official footage and and footage from locals, and and, and I can't wait. So uh, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So with that, let's do up with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links to visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you soon.